0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, do turn to that uh, passage in uh, Romans chapter 3, and if you haven't got a Bible, maybe uh, try and share one around. I want to start by just talking about uh, a man called Eric Blair. In January 1936... Eric Blair traveled from the affluent south of England up to the industrial north. He was writing a book about social conditions during one of the harshest economic times in, in the country's history. And the north had been especially hard hit, and the publishers wanted the true story to be told. And he was advised that he should stay in Wigan. So during February that year, he stayed in some dirty lodgings above a tripe shop. Visitors to this country may not know what tripe is. I think it's a cow's stomach and was obviously favored in Wigan in those days. He visited many homes to see how people lived. He took detailed notes of the housing conditions and the wages and he went down the coal mine with the miners to see the working conditions firsthand. And the book he wrote is called The Road to Wigan Pier. This is how it starts. The first sound in the morning was the clumping of the mill girls' clogs down the cobbled street. Earlier than that, I suppose, there were factory whistles which I was never awake to hear. There were generally four of us in the one bedroom, and a beastly place it was. Beastly. See, this was not the world that Eric Blair had grown up in. He was from a middle-class family, and he was educated at Eton. But something drove him to abandon whatever privilege he'd known as a child and a young person and to see how the other half live. And it took him actually on an astonishing journey. He gave away most of his possessions and he kept some old clothes and he literally went underground living as a tramp in London and then in Paris so that he could tell the stories of the poor. He became passionately devoted to changing the world. I'm sure you know Eric Blair by his other, his name, his pen name, which is George Orwell. He later wrote Animal Farm, 1984, a number of other classics. But what drove him? In the 1920s, Eric Blair had spent five years working in Burma for the Imperial Police, the military police, and he was so ashamed by his experiences in that time that it changed him forever. He, said, he wrote, I remember once I was inspecting a police station and an American missionary whom I knew fairly well came in for some purpose or other. Like most nonconformist missionaries, he was a complete ass, <laughs> but quite a good fellow. One of my native sub-inspectors was bullying a suspect. The American watched it and then turned to me and said thoughtfully, I wouldn't care to have your job. It made me horribly ashamed. So that was the kind of job I had. Even an ass of an American missionary had the right to look down on me and pity me. But I should have felt the same shame even if there'd been no one there to bring it home. I had begun to have an indescribable loathing of the whole machinery of so-called justice. Say what you will, our criminal law is a horrible thing. It needs very insensitive people to administer it the wretched prisoners squatting in the reeking cages of the lock-ups, the grey cowed faces of the long-term convicts, the women and children howling when their menfolk were dragged away under house arrest. Things like these are beyond bearing when you are in any way directly responsible for them. I watched a man hanged once, he said, it seemed to me worse than a thousand murders. And so when he came home in 1927, he was already half convinced that he would give up his job, but he said, I wanted much more than merely to escape from my job. For five years, I'd been part of an oppressive system, and it had left me with a bad conscience. Innumerable remembered faces, faces of prisoners in the dock, faces of men waiting in the condemned cells, faces of subordinates i had bullied, aged peasants i had snubbed, of servants and coolies i had hit with my fist in moments of anger, haunted me intolerably. I was conscious of an immense weight of guilt that I had got to expiate. That's what drove George Orwell the rest of his life. An immense weight of guilt that he had got to expiate. Now, we probably don't use the word expiate in our everyday conversation very much. It means to pay for, to make amends for, to to make it up. But the question is, can a man or a woman pay for their own sins? Can they make amends? Now, the letter to the Romans answers this question. We've actually been thinking about it already today. And the the answer that it gives is no, we can't pay for our sins. The writer Paul spends the first couple of chapters with a deep analysis of the human condition. And his gloomy conclusion, it's there in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 10, is that there is no one righteous, not even one. And in verse 9 he explains why. It's because Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now mention of Jews and Gentiles... Surfaces, one of the biggest cultural differences in the ancient world. The Jews were believers in the one true God. They had the Bible, the Old Testament. They knew all about God's holiness and his perfect character. They knew how they were supposed to live. They were supposed to keep God's teaching and instruction, something called the law. But they failed to love and obey God. So although they could be very self-righteous and they knew the right thing to do, they were actually hypocrites for the most part. Now, the Gentiles, by contrast, often lived just as they pleased and indulged themselves to the limit. At their best, they could come up with noble philosophy and art, but at its worst, their life was nasty, brutish, and short. So Paul's conclusion in chapter 3 there, verse 9 and 10, is that every human being is under sin, enslaved by it, like a, a tyrannical slave master holding them under control, unable to escape, controlled. Whether they were a reckless hedonist or devout religious person everybody is under sin let me ask you if you were to record your own words for a single week and play them back do you think you would have lived up to your own standards if every thought you had was immediately verbalized how many friends would you have left If every website you had visited in the last year was projected onto this screen, and everybody knew you'd looked at it, would you stay to the end of the service? He says we're all under sin. All human beings of every creed and culture, the religious and the irreligious, without exception, sinful. That is the human predicament that Paul's been describing so far in his letter. Sinners. And we may express our sin by being very, very bad. Or we may express it by being very, very good. We're still sinners. There's no ray of light so far, no flicker of hope. But just look at chapter 3, verse 21. And here the light breaks in a new day dawns. And the world is flooded with light. But now. But now. Uh, This is the start of the best news you'll ever hear. One scholar actually said, you know that bit that Christina just read? One scholar says, this may be the most important single paragraph that's ever been written in world literature. The most important paragraph that's ever been written. is right here, Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Why is this so important? Because it tells us God's response to our situation. And it is unspeakably glorious. This story can be told in four words, guilt, glory, grace, and redemption. Guilt, glory, grace, and redemption. And those of you who know me will know how sad I am that I couldn't get that fourth word to begin with G. Guilt, glory, grace, redemption, anyway. Firstly, guilt, verse 23, have a look there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I won't spend very long on this because we've actually been thinking about it a lot already. Paul summarizes the essence of our situation as all have sinned. Now, J. Calvin Coolidge was the president of the United States from 1923 to 29. He was famous for being a man of very few words. He was known as Silent Cal. On one occasion, he went to church, and when he came home, his wife asked him, what was the sermon about? And Coolidge replied with a single word, sin. But his wife was persistent. Well, what did the preacher say about it? And after a moment's thought, Coolidge replied, he said he was against it. (laughs) Now that is true. But it's not the last word on sin, as you can imagine. Okay, you say, but what is sin? I can think of some mistakes I've made. Regrets? I have a few. But then again, too few to mention Few things I've done, few unpleasant things I've maybe thought or said. Is it really that bad? Now, the Bible's understanding of sin is actually quite radical, quite stark. It is unlike any other worldview or philosophy that I've ever come across. It is that sin is not a matter of just discrete actions or bits of behavior that we sort of do now and then. It's actually, sin is about an entire disposition, an entire Heart, character, an entire way of being in the world. See, according to the Bible, we are not, by nature, confused, seekers for truth, who have a kind of respect for God but just haven't bumped into him yet. In reality, we have a distaste for God and an uncontrollable desire to break his laws, a constant tendency to sit in judgment on him when we bother to give him our attention. People are actually enemies of God But they're largely unconscious of their hostility. They're constantly angry at God subconsciously and daily express this anger and contempt towards other people and other things. So sin is not a question of the odd naughty deed. Human nature is touched and deformed in every area, all through. Our hearts are allergic to God. We think of ourselves like this apple. I bought this last night, 60 pence. You know, that apple doesn't look too... Oh, there's a bit of a bruise on it there. and that, That's a slight blemish. Yeah, there's a bit of a ding. I don't know. But you know what? It's okay. It's a pretty good apple. We think of ourselves like that. But what the Bible says is if you were to take a knife and cut it down the middle, you would find it was rotten right away to the core. No matter what it looks like on the outside. That's the analysis of Scripture. So when Paul says, all have sinned, he really means something deep. He means uh, we're uh, allergic to God. Our hearts are dark. They're like a polluted fountain. And all the water that pours out of it, all the words and actions, are actually tainted. You think of a, anything in your life that you've done with a completely pure motive. All have sinned. Now, some of you guys here are from an honor-shame culture. And you're not as familiar, I think, with the idea of guilt. It probably wasn't something that was, you thought a lot about growing up. And some of you here grew up in a secular Western culture or family, and you just have not thought a lot about sin. Uh, and so it may sound to you that I'm just being really traditional here and being kind of moralistic. So I want to just address this next part of the story, moving away from guilt now to think about glory. Think about glory because that's the other thing that Paul says in this very curious statement All have sinned and fall short of what? What did we fall short of? I'd expect him to say fall short of God's standards, you know, or fall short of uh, the rules or fall short of the holiness that God requires. No, he actually says we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, doesn't that seem odd to you? Glory. What does it mean? In the, uh, the Bible, the Hebrew word glory literally means weight, heaviness, weight. It means the permanent versus the temporary. It means the substantial and the important versus the unimportant. It means real as opposed to unreal. So when the Bible talks about God's glory, it is talking about his weightiness. Compared to anything else, God alone is permanent, and real and God alone matters compared to anything else God alone matters if you drop an object that's heavier than water into the water what happens the water makes way the water is displaced because the water has less glory than the thing that has been dropped into it and the reality according to the Bible is that God has more glory more weight than anything else in the universe. So whenever God comes down to earth in the Bible, there is an earthquake because of his glory, his weightiness, his presence, his magnificent, glorious presence. He's more glorious than anything else. When they built the temple in the Old Testament to try and symbolize the glory of God, they used the most glorious substance that they could get their hands on. You know what it was? Gold. The heaviest, shiniest, most precious thing that they could get and they they covered the temple with this substance to show something about God's weighty glory so compared to God everything else in the world has no weight and whenever God's reality comes down everything else shakes now how about you you may have come to believe in God as a concept you may have come to believe that there probably is some sort of deity out there but in your life and in your experience Who weighs the most? Is God weightier than you or lighter than you? I think the answer is found in whether God fits around your existing patterns or you make way for him. Has your belief in God changed you very much? Do you have a God who can actually change you? He can come into your life and move the furniture around, come into your life and change and challenge your deepest beliefs, contradict you, turn you around, change your mind. Some people do try to get interested in religion. They start going to church, reading the Bible, praying. But sometimes they're doing it because they need help to reach their own goals. So they try to get God to fit into their purposes. But that means that they've got more weight and glory than God himself. What it says here, all have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we've not recognized God for who he is. We've not given him the glory in our lives, the place of honor, the weight that he deserves. But the Bible says that human beings were made for glory. We're built to give glory. We, we love glory. So if we were created to bring glory to God and we don't do it, what happens? The answer is, we seek glory for ourselves. We seek glory for ourselves. We become obsessed with our own glory. We become preoccupied with our own greatness, our own beauty, our own reputation now can you see this if you don't believe me let me ask you a few questions how do you react when people overlook you or snub you or fail to admit that you're important they treat you like you are weightless how does it feel why are you so invested in your career or your art or that relationship Is it because it really gives you glory, it makes you someone? What makes you really furious? Could it be connected with not being given the glory that you crave? Final question. What kind of photographs of yourself do you choose to put on social media? Could it be that you carefully choose the photos that make you look good? Ever met somebody who you've previously seen on Facebook and then thought, wow, they really don't look like their Facebook photo. You know, that photo was glorious. (laughs) In fact, most of social media is preoccupied with our quest to give glory to ourselves and justify our existence. But there's no freedom in it. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And it is miserable. We've all sinned, guilt. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I know how we want glory. But God doesn't look at us with contempt. And God doesn't look at you with hatred. Far from it. There are two words that summarize God's view of you and his treatment of you. And they are two of the most beautiful words in the dictionary. They are grace and redemption. Grace and redemption. Look with me, verse 24. All are justified freely, or as a gift, by his grace. By his grace. What is this Grace. The word means kindness and mercy, but particularly shown to people who don't deserve it. Kindness and mercy to people who haven't earned it. Kindness and mercy to people who have no merit. That's how God looks at you. Even though he sees your very heart, even though he knows your deepest and darkest secret, he looks upon you with a heart of kindness and love. And he gives you, he acts towards you in grace. I'm sure you know the story of Les Miserables, or you've seen the recent film version with Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, possibly the most miserable film I've ever seen. Lived up to its name. I actually couldn't finish it. It tells the story of a criminal called Jean Valjean, a tough, bitter, hardened man, spent 19 years in prison, unjust sentence. But when he's finally released, he can't even find work. Or shelter. No one wants anything to do with him. Finally, he's taken in by a kindly bishop who gives him food and a place to stay. But John Valjean repays the bishop badly. He creeps downstairs in the middle of the night and he takes the bishop's silver and he creeps out of the house to steal it. But he's quickly caught by the police and three constables bring him back to the house. And things look desperate because this time he will be sentenced to death. The bishop has the opportunity to incriminate him. But instead, seeing what's happened, the bishop puts on a bit of an act. And he says, oh, there you are, my friend. I'm so delighted to see you. Why did you leave so soon? Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? He points to the silver candlesticks. They're silver like the rest, he says. They're worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And so the constables, although they suspect it's not what it looks, they have to let Valjean go free. And after they've gone, the bishop says, I meant it, keep the silver and keep the candlesticks as well. But don't forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. And Valjean is absolutely stunned. And he stutters, why are you doing this? And the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul and now I am giving you back to God. You see, the bishop could have treated Valjean in one of three ways. He could have treated him with justice, turned him in, given him what he's deserved, get the silver off him and have him packed off to prison. Or he could have treated him with leniency. He could have said, give me the silver back, but I won't press charges, just let him go. That would be leniency. But the third way is the way of grace. He says, I know what you've done, and I know how you've abused my kindness. Now keep the silver and take the candlesticks too. You can go free but I ask that you use the money to change your life for the better. He gives the criminal standing before him a most precious, costly gift, one that is totally undeserved. That is grace. It's a picture of grace, treating somebody with undeserved kindness and generosity. And I think we will never understand Christianity, you and I, we will never understand it until we see ourselves in exactly the same position as Valjean exactly the same position, no matter how you've lived on the outside. We all of us stand before God as Valjean before the bishop, utterly guilty and shamed, fallen far short of his glory. We deserve judgment for the way we've treated him. We have no way of putting the situation right. But rather than treating us as we deserve, God offers us forgiveness out of amazing grace. And that brings us to our fourth and final word in this story, which is redemption. Back to verse 24. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption. How does God manage to forgive us while not breaking his own commitment to justice? God isn't inclined to just break the rules or sweep things under the carpet, pretend they didn't happen. God is just, absolutely, and perfectly. Here's the answer. He brings us grace through redemption. Redemption. This is a word that actually comes from the slave market or the world of prisoners of war. In the ancient world, you could actually own a person. You could buy them in a slave market, or if they were a prisoner of war, they could be captured and taken and made into a slave. But it was possible to be redeemed, which meant someone would pay a price, a heavy price, in order to free the prisoner of war or free a slave. And they could actually pay this redemption price. And once it was paid, the person, it was as if they'd never actually been a slave. They were completely free again. So the idea here is that God has paid a price through Jesus to set us free. Redeemed us. Now, when did he do that? When did he do that? It was at the cross. Verse 25 actually talks about this, but it doesn't say the word cross. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So here we have an image of a sacrifice, Jesus being a sacrifice and his blood being shed at the cross. Uh, and, and it's something that will create atonement at one moment. It will bring back peace and freedom. Now the background of this image to us is, is a very distant world, the world of the Old Testament. An animal would be taken to be sacrificed. But there's loads of verses in the Bible that say this animal had to be absolutely perfect and without any kind of blemish or defect. The animal was then taken and it served as a substitute for the person who brought it. So the animal was representing The person. And as before it was sacrificed, the the man or woman would put their hand on the animal's head and it would go in their place. So there's a logic there of substitution. It's standing in for me. I'm leaning on it and symbolically transferring all my wrongdoing and sin, and the animal, with its perfection, goes off and it takes my place. So Paul, by saying a sacrifice, is using this kind of image to explain what Jesus was doing at his death. So Jesus' death wasn't just an accident. It wasn't even a, particularly a, a heroic example. It was primarily a substitution, standing in for sinners. The perfect one goes, and the guilty go free, just as that animal had gone in the Old Testament and the human being had walked away. Somewhere else in the Bible, Paul puts it like this. God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we will become sinners the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. In the early 19th century, there were two Chinese brothers living in California. They looked almost identical, but they had very different characters. The older brother was a hard-working, responsible type. The younger one was a criminal and a gambler. One night, he got into a fight at a card game and he accidentally killed a man. He ran away, ran home, got out of his bloody clothes, and left town. Later that night, the older brother got home and he realized what had happened. He knew the police were gonna come looking for his brother. So he put on his brother's clothes, the bloody clothes. And when the police came, because he looked so much like him, they mistook him for his brother. He was tried, found guilty and executed for the crime of manslaughter. He took his brother's death penalty. Now sometime later the younger brother sneaked back into town and he discovered what had happened and he was shaken to the core. He felt terrible. So he went to the police and he confessed his crime himself. But do you know what the police said? We can't execute two people for the same crime. You're free to go. The penalty has been paid that's redemption so against all of that dark backdrop of Romans chapter 1, 2, 3 which concludes there's no one righteous, no not one we have these great words guilt glory grace and redemption and this is the old, old story of the gospel The good news that says this is what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. He took my penalty. He paid for your shame. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was totally, completely out of grace. And that, once you know that, changes everything. Because at that point, when you start to see the glory of God for what it really is, he comes into your life and changes everything around starts to turn you around, make you a different kind of person. Because no longer are you obsessed with your own quest for self-justifying and glory and trying to make a name for yourself, because you've become loved by the only person in the universe who really matters. So, I'm just going to close by giving an invitation to anybody here who has been thinking about the Christian faith for some time, and that may be days, weeks, months, or years, And you finally just realize in that very simple story where you are. And you realize that you need to do what the verse says here at the end. uh, To be received by faith. You need to believe. You need to put your trust in Jesus. Your faith in him. To lean your weight on him. To say, I'm sorry for everything I've done, but I thank you that you love me so much. Help me to trust you now. So I'm going to just... Give a moment of silence and then I'll pray. Musicians can come back up during that time. Let's think about these words. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the Bible. That in one sense is so simple that the children could retell it to us using a banner with some pictures on it. And in another sense is so profound and vast that we could spend the rest of our lives and all eternity exploring it and never plummet steps. Thank you that you know us and yet you love us. And thank you Lord Jesus that you loved us even to your own death. Father I pray now for anyone here who's realized that today is the day they want to believe in him and trust him. Help them over that line. Bring them into your kingdom. And may the angels be rejoicing about their name today. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.